Welcome to the Dear Katie podcast. This is Katie Kessner. And this is Claire Kaplan. I want to thank you all for joining us tonight. But before we start, I wanted to remind you that the content of the podcast, even though this is a little bit different, might be stressful or difficult for someone or potentially triggering for a survivor. So um, please don't hesitate to reach out for support, whether it's from, to, from friends or family or even an anonymous hotline. And we also have resource information listed on the Take Back the Night Foundation website. Thanks so much, Claire. And as we always do, we're going to start out hearing from one of those Dear Katie letter writers who um, shared their own journey with me as I was traveling and speaking out um, across the country. Dear Katie, I remember your story about the college in Connecticut and the one about the six guys. And do you know what I felt? Rage. That is my only word to describe my feelings. Blind rage. I'm a big guy, about 6'3", 215 pounds, and all I could think was how I could unleash all of my strength and anger upon just one of these people and take their lives. I have a recurring nightmare where my sister gets raped, and I go out and kill and torture the guy who did it. I know I sound violent and a bit sick, but I'm not. Few people are born violent and twisted. It takes outside conditions, harsh conditions, to drive someone to violence or mental anguish. I am a peaceful person. I love poetry and write every day. Your talk forced me to re-examine the times I may have crossed a boundary in a relationship with a female because of a petty sexual urge. I know I have asked for sex or oral sex from a girl, and if they wanted to, they did. If not, the issue died, didn't it? What about if I asked too much or hooked up with a girl who was drunk and so was I? I can say with a clear conscience that I have always respected a woman's choice to do or not do what she wants. I have never used my strength or intimidation to force a girl into anything. I will take a stand, do something, get involved. Thank you so much for your story, your courage, and your time. Wow, always so powerful, so powerful. So today we are so thrilled and delighted to have with us Gordon Braxton. Um, I just want to give a small uh, tidbit of information about how Gordon and I met so many years ago. I was seeking out a male voice to co-present with me as I was sharing my story. And um, I drove to a school and asked Gordon to come and do an interview. And we met there in the parking lot. And um, I, I did this quick interview with him and was so incredibly impressed um, with every answer. He had just graduated from the University of Virginia and had, um, as far as I knew at that moment, uh, been involved with a group called One in Four, which was an organization of men working to end sexual violence and raise awareness and support survivors. Um, he was president of his historically black fraternity, and um, he impressed me with you know his candor, his openness, his honesty, and his true um, commitment to wanting to take this journey. I don't think he knew how long the ride might be, um, literally and figuratively, as we've spent um, millions, I bet a million miles in the car together, driving from campus to campus and audience to audience where we've done our work uh, together. So thank you so much for joining us, Gordon. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for sharing your platform. Of course. And Claire, I think you also had an interaction with Gordon at University of Virginia. Well, yes, because Gordon, I knew Gordon be, uh, for a while, but he took a course that I taught called Gender Violence and Social Justice. And uh, he uh, 
stood out among our students. We had several men in the class, but um, Gordon was one of those guys who just got everything like right away, probably before most of the women did too. So it was, um, he was one of our favorites. I hate to say it, but um, now I can say it because it's been a long time. I'm happy to know that I had an influence on him and his work with you, Katie. Absolutely. And um, as, we, as Gordon and I have traveled the country, I'm sure the impetus and ideas behind the book that you um, are coming out with this year, Gordon probably started to percolate and um, evolve as we traveled. Um, I would love to hear your take on how the book came about. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Well, to be honest, it's probably is a, a book I started maybe 20 years ago. <laughs> um, it was just a project I would put down uh, for periods of time. Uh, honestly, because of a lot of times, really doubt, uh, not believing in the project to ever see reality. So I'm really thankful to you, yourself, and to Claire, because um, you two are two of many voices that in, encouraged me to share my voice. Um, and then I, I was finally able to link up with a publisher uh, not too long ago. Um, that That's the business side of, of having a vision. You know, a lot of times we have great ideas, we have great thoughts, we want to put them into print or uh, television or song or whatever, but there's a business side to this. And sometimes you need some help to make that happen. And uh, things finally came together um, last year for me and that book should be coming out in January. So exciting, Gordon. And I think for our listeners, could you just give us, you know, an overview to start with what the book's about? Yeah, uh, the book is called Empowering Black Boys to Challenge Rape Culture. Um, it's meant primarily as an introductory resource uh, for, for parents and, and guardians and mentors of black boys um, who know that there are conversations to be had with young men. Uh, but may not know exactly where to start. Uh, they may know there's a problem, but they may not be equipped with the tools to have a conversation with the young men that they know and care about. Um, and this book is meant to be a resource for, for that population. And, um, you know, I guess, can you, you know, how did you organize that? What are some of the themes in the book? Yeah, sure. I, uh, I would say it's primarily organized from for things I wish I knew. <laughs> when I was growing up. Um, and you, you all said a little bit of my background up front, but I was, as you know, I was, I was well into college before I had a single conversation about this topic, uh, that being sexual violence, awareness and prevention. Um, it's not that I didn't have thoughts on it. It's not that I didn't have opinions on it. It's not that I didn't have people in my life that were affected by it. It's just that uh, we don't see this topic as integral to the training of young men. Um, and I was, you know, deep into my college career before anyone ever had a conversation with me. And I think it's gotten better now, but I don't think I'm alone. Uh, I think it's pretty common for to meet young men who have never really had a space to flush out their opinions um, and their perspectives on this topic outside of, you know, maybe the, their cliched opinions. Obviously, the book is organized around things that I wish I had jumped into at a much earlier stage in my life. Things about things like such as the ability to challenge manhood. If there's aspects of manhood that you don't like, um, you can change it. How can men better challenge aspects of manhood that they might not like? And you know, what is it that you're hoping that men will step up to and challenge? And is it different for men of color? Yeah, so I, I, I think 
one of the things I've I've learned traveling around with with you, Katie, and with others is that I feel like men of all backgrounds they kind of struggle with the same things on this issue. Um, you know, different communities will articulate it differently. Um, the strategies for talking to particular communities may be different, but but by and large, I feel like what I'm talking about is it's 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 uh, it affects all communities, black, white. Uh, rural, urban, poor, rich, um, you know, like I said, the communities may articulate these things in different ways, but they're by and large struggling with the same things. And to get back to your your, your initial question, I, I think the first lesson that, that I hope young people learn is that manhood is changeable. <laughs> uh, it's often described as this, um, you know, this, this unmovable force of nature, it's something that just is, but that's far from true. Uh, gender constructs are forever moving, forever changing. You don't even have to go back that far in time to see that. <laughs> and uh, I think the first lesson I hope that all young people learn is that if there's aspects of their training uh, that they don't like, um, feel free to find out who you are for, for yourself. And, and it's kind of unfortunate for me that I didn't really start to delve into this question uh until i was a little bit older and i'm i'm so grateful i meet so many young people that are that are much younger ages that are empowered to to ask these these questions and decide who it is they want to be um rather than accepting uh the norms and the standards that society has pushed on them you know in all our our journeys we we have heard from so many young people um about their vision for change and when they you know kind of uncover some of the misled um, mantras they've, they've heard over the time, misleading mantras, I think they're willing to challenge them. Um, you know, either in your opinion or in our experience, what are some of the biggest um, locations of those mis mistruths, those misleading, uh, you know, messages about manhood? I think one of the biggest ones that I focus on is other peers. <laughs> um, there, there are certain, well, when, when you talk to young men, quite often they will feel that there are certain um, beliefs and attitudes that they're, they're not at liberty to challenge. Um, and, and, and young people actually express fear in, in challenging. And they don't, they don't always necessarily mean physical fear. They usually don't. They just mean fear of social reprisal. It's, it's just not cool <laughs> to push back um against against certain thoughts and certain behaviors and certain opinions uh they don't want to be that person that, that's standing out from the crowd um and you know and, I, and I, I certainly don't say this because i think i'm any better than them because i mean i i had to grow into this it took me a while to get to a place where i was comfortable sitting in a place with my peers and saying well you know I, this is this is how i feel about it um, it took me a while to get there. And that, that's why I'm thankful that there are more and more outlets that are challenging young people so that they can start to think about a lot of these things and how they might push back against them um, at earlier ages. And obviously, the, the earlier that we can, we can talk to people, um, the more actual negative events we can, we can probably um, prevent by having these conversations. Gordon, do you remember if anyone, when you started working on the cause, did any, I mean, you were invited. I mean, I always remember you saying, I was invited to this table. Did you have any backlash from anyone in your world for going to the table? 
any of the, your friends, your fraternity brothers, your classmates, your parents, your brothers? Yeah, for 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 sure. I, I would say most of it wasn't outright hostility, though. Most of it was just um, awkwardness. You know, <laughs> people didn't know quite what to make of me. Um, you know, once I started sharing my voice. Um, and one thing is I will always share with young men who, who want to share their voice is, at least in my experience, like even everyone in my life that came to matter, like they, they came to respect the stand I took. And this includes some friends that uh, were initially, who initially provided some pushback. So they had a lot of questions. Um, they couldn't understand why I was doing this um, and were vocal about it. But in most cases, in almost all those cases, these folks over time like did did come back and say, "Well, you know, I see I see where you're coming from." So that's something I I, I do hope to to um, to give to young men who do want to share their voice. Um, you know, the the response may not be immediate. I mean, sometimes it takes time. I'm curious. I know you were invited to come to a meeting about one in four, and um, you're I probably were nominated by someone, um, an administrator at the university. Um, I, I'm curious though, plenty of people go to those meetings and don't, it doesn't resonate with them. They, you know, go, oh, that's, that's cool, but not for me. You know, they move on and do something else or they just don't get involved. Um, and plenty of the guys got involved but didn't stick with it the way you had. And I'm just wondering, what was it? What, what was it? in your life story that resonated for you? Because very few people get involved to the degree that you have. Absolutely. So I, I would say that the, the clearest thing was the, the bravery and willingness of survivors to share their story with me. So like I said, when I first got invited, I, I thought that the topic was, I think it was, I thought it was just a strange thing to talk about. And that's, that's partially because I didn't, it wasn't personal to me. Um, and after I started sharing my voice, uh, I, I was fortunate and I considered myself fortunate that, you know, several women thought enough of me to personalize this issue for me. Um, and they said, Hey, that, that thing you're talking about, uh, this is, this it, it's real, it's real to me. And it, it took it out of concept, which is where a lot of men talk about it. It's almost like theory and discussion um, and, and, and personalize it in a way that was absolutely beneficial to me. So I'm forever grateful to all of those women that shared their stories with me. Um, you know, some, sometimes sharing your story ha has that kind of impact on people. And that I was one of those people. Uh, the other thing I think that really helped me out was just having a larger social justice framework um, I was already very much interested in social justice issues from a, a perspective of race. And the more I learned, and that was partially, you know, through classes such as yours, Claire, the, the more I listened to what, what women had been saying on this topic, I mean, quite frankly, for hundreds of years, not thousands, <laughs> um, the more I listened, and I was exposed to those voices, the more it sounded like arguments that I was already familiar with from a racial context. Um, and I think that status quos and power structures 
have always been adept at minimizing and normalizing violence against certain communities, whether that's uh, violence against a population that we're at war with or sexual violence against children and women or state-sanctioned violence against uh, black and brown people. Um, I, I think one of the, the best, one of the most powerful tools that all of these things have, have at their disposal is that they, they have ways of, of minimizing um, and, and, and uh, normalizing the, the violence. And the, the longer I stuck around the issue, the more I could see that and the more I could see actual mechanisms in play. So that, that's why I got stronger into the movement over time versus fading away, um, whereas you know a lot of people might, and that, that's what certainly helped me. Well, that, that rings true for me and my experience with you in the class as well, but just also in your work, because that was, that's the thing that so many people don't make those connections. I'm wondering if um, in your conversations um, with black and brown men in your work, if you're able to, when you explain it that way, does it, do you see the light bulbs go on, you know, where they go, oh yeah, I see what, I see what you're saying, you know, where they kind of see it's just a tool of oppression, like other tools of oppression, in a sense, that violence enforces or reinforces and holds up the status quo. Do they, do they make that connection? Uh, I, I think it can cut both ways, unfortunately. <laughs> so I, I think in a lot of cases, it does go that way. The same way it did for me. Like, oh, I see. Yeah, this this is something I'm familiar with. Um, but I, I do think there is also, it, it can cut another direction too, um, in that I think sometimes there is a tendency to um, almost prioritize opp oppression. Um so to speak, and you know, you see this you see this playing out on social media all the time. Um, you know, where maybe one community has an issue that they're that they're concerned about, and there'll be some pushback from another community saying, "Okay, well, that's that's not as important as this other issue over here." Mm -hmm. um, so, so I I do think it actually it has power to 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 divide as well as to unite. Um, mm -hmm. For me, I, I've, I've it's always been a uniter, though, because I, I, I don't think there's much value in ranking things personally. Because I don't think we're ever going to get to a place where we could say we completely eliminated <laughs> a lot of these issues, right? So right. to say that we need to get this other thing fixed first before we tackle this other issue, it doesn't it doesn't make sense to me conceptually because that's that's a that's a point we're never going to hit. And by making it, by ma by saying that, we're almost effectively saying, well, let's never work on this, this issue over here. You know, I feel like we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time and make connections and hopefully uh, try to attack many social problems at, at the same time. That is the struggle, right? Because every oppressed group has obviously the issues they're dealing with are the primary issues and they're the ones they're dealing with every day, their lived experience. So sort of say, yeah, we'll take a little time out for this other group, right? It's hard. And and it's, you know, helping. I love that you're saying this because it's, it's like we all have to be working on each other's issues simultaneously. Like Audrey Lord said, there is no hierarchy of oppression and there's, you know, our oppressions. And it's hard though when you're, when there's so much, so much to deal with, for example, racism. I mean, every day. 
and to think about, well, am I supposed to pay attention to this other issue? But it is part of racism too. And that's the hard thing for young people to get, I think, that you have to understand the linking of all these things together because if you can, you know, if you're working on this issue, that's critical. And we can also work on this other issue and we're helping each other out. And it's also affecting you directly, you know. Um, Gordon, another question I think that comes to mind is how do you make um, a pathway to, you know, there'll, there'll be critics who say, how do you get to be on this platform? Just like for me, you know, we've always been challenged. What gives you the, how would you answer those critics? Like, you're not a survivor. You're not a victim. You're your man you know how how do you answer them how do you come to the platform how do you come to have their voice yeah well if i understand the correction the question correctly and let me know if i'm not getting at it but um i, I will say on, on the one hand I, I don't i don't think there's anything special about me at all <laughs> and that's that's kind of the point um i'm just a um average guy that was approached with this topic and decided to lend my voice and I think there's a lot of other people that would, uh, they just, they just need an invitation. Um, but as far as how maybe I relate to survivors, I know that I know for a fact that I wouldn't be here if survivors hadn't shared their story with me. Um, you know, there's, there's any number of issues in the world because there's any number of problems in the world. And I often ask myself, well, how is it that this issue stuck? Um, you know, in the myriad of, of great uh, causes that there are to work for. Um, you know, we don't all have infinite energies like yourself, Katie. Most of us have to choose, you know, what we're going to spend our time on. And I think this issue stuck with me, I think, uh, because of survivors. So I know uh, I, I do want maybe say that to, to survivors. If those that do share their voices, I want them to know that they're there is a preventative component to them sharing their voices as well. Um, we often in the field, like we're generally separated in terms of prevention or um, response, but I, I don't, I think, I think they're two sides of the same coin and hearing from survivors, empathizing with survivors, understanding the impact of violence in turns has, has a preventative effect as well um, because it makes people challenge their own personal behaviors and I ha just have a hard time seeing a world in which, you know, maybe we do really good at prevention, but not so good at, at response um, and, and vice versa. They're both sides of the same coin and they they both reflect how we feel about respecting the integrity of others and what our values are. So I, I've always seen response and prevention um, is related and I'm thankful to everyone that shared their story with me and I want those people to know that they have a, a preventative role to their voice and a preventative impact. And I've always been very thankful. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Gordon. And I just have one more question. And in, in terms of you've really, truly dedicated so much of your life. And I, you know, most of our listeners may not have sat there with you in so many auditoriums and driven the miles that you've driven to carry your message. But uh, my question is, of all the things you've done, what are some highlights for you as you look back in affecting change? Well, 
I'm not sure if anything reminds you that the world can train change more so than the young people. <laughs> um, just walk into a high school, a middle school, elementary school, and while you can relate to some things, um, there are always reminders of how much things change and how quickly things change too. Like the things that that were of interest to you, it's not of interest to them <laughs> in a lot of respects. The things that uh, you spent your time doing, uh, they spend their time doing different things. And they're always just strong reminders of, of how quickly culture can change to me. But I've always found something hopeful in that. Um, and because when we look at a problem like sexual violence, which is, you know, probably been with us since um, humanity <laughs> first started to organize, um, and we think of it as, as this fixture in, in the world that has to always exist, but kids are mine, you know, like maybe it doesn't have to. What is it that you're seeing young people doing that gives you hope? I, I think I would say the way that they they challenge generations before them. Uh, this this is not related to sexual violence, but I was actually just talking to a mother who was telling me how um, her her son checked her on um, the way she was referencing a um, one of her one of her son's friends. Her, one of her son's friends uh, identified as non-binary, and it the child was actually educating her <laughs> on the proper pronouns to use, um, how to, re- how to refer to the person, um, how that person might want to be received. And this, this was a middle school student talking to um, his, his mother. And I know when I was that age, I was certainly not equipped to have that conversation. <laughs> and I'm going to go out on a limb and say that, that most of my peers weren't either, if not all of them. And I, I think they nowadays, I suspect young people are regularly having conversations such as that. Um, and so I think that's, in answering your question, I, I think I most take away just, just how often they challenge us. Um, you know, we often think of the education as going in a single direction from adult to, to young person. But it's it's a conversation that's going back and forth in my mind uh, when it comes to to cultural matters for sure. Uh, so I'd like to think we have an interchange of ideas and together we're moving forward as a society with us making them better and them making us better. Um, I certainly learned from them, and I hope some of them have learned something from from me sharing my voice over the years for sure. <laughs> Well, I have confidence that they have, but I, I totally hear what you're saying. It's, it's, I see this as well, uh, and it is cause for great hope, I think. Um, Gordon, as we wrap up our conversation with you, this has been just, I'm so proud and pleased to have journeyed alongside you. And now that you're, you've written your thoughts down, I think they're going to be um, heard and read by so many more people who haven't had the chance to meet you in person. Um, you know, what, what would you say kind of as we wrap up, where to from here for you? Um, you know, I think your, your voice is really important. Do you want to keep using it and any new dimensions and spaces where you, you haven't gone yet that you're eager to, um, 
you know, open up another door. Yeah. Um, well, I, this is one of those issues for me. I wouldn't be able to put it down if I wanted to. Um, <laughs> I'm still going to see and hear things and react to it. It's just part of who I am at this point. Um, but yeah, this, so this is my first formally published book and I learned a lot. And one of the biggest things that I learned is that it's just not, you're just not able to capture everything, right? It's <laughs> one book is not going to be everything to everybody. And there's always more you're going to want to say. There's always more, uh, there's always better ways to say something. And you just have to hit a point where you put something out for the world. Um, but yeah, I hope to do, I hope that I am able to continue to share my voice on some of the things uh, that I started speaking on in the book or other topics that I weren't able to, that I wasn't able to get to all together. So yeah, I, I hope it does well enough that I'm, that I'm able to do that. Um, but if just a few people get something out of it, then, um, then it will have been worth it as well. Well, oh, thank you. Well, I'm sure they will get something out of it. I know, I know once they start reading, it'll be wonderful to um, hear their responses as well. So maybe we can chat again with, you know, one of your readers and you um, and do another podcast about what they learned and what your thoughts are. I think that would be fantastic for our listeners as well. So Gordon, thank you um, kindly again for spending this time with us and our listeners. And please, for our, our listeners, please do pick up a copy um, where books are sold um, of Gordon's book. You said January, right, Gordon? Yes, yeah, so it should come out sometime in January. It's called Empowering uh, Black yeah. Boys to Challenge Rape Culture. Um, so I just went with the subtitle for the title. So <laughs> that's how you find it. Absolutely. So this has been a Dear Katie podcast. Thank you so much, uh, listeners, for joining us. Um, and thank you, Claire. Thank you, Katie. And also thanks to our listeners for um, sitting in on this podcast and listening to what Gordon has to share. Um, if you have any questions or need any resources, if you visit takebackthenight.org, you can find those there, which also includes our um, legal support hotline. Um, and again, as we always say, we're never alone. There are many people walking with all of us in healing and supporting survivors. Gordon has been a perfect example of that and in ending sexual violence. Together, the Dear Katie podcast, we hope very much to shatter the silence and end the violence. Uh, thank you and we look forward to next week with you. So long, everyone.